In this video, I'm going to talk about what I believe to be the greatest danger and problem that the human species is facing and that most of us don't are not even aware about at all. I think this is far more important than climate change, wars, short of nuclear war, I suppose, uh, anything that happens on the political realm, it's that big. And it's also something that's inevitable we are going to face and probably a matter of decades away. So not very far. And so to give you a little preview of what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about memetics, first of all, and the memetic landscape. And that will bring us into talking about computation and like the computational landscape in the internet and so on. And then I'm going to talk about AI and I'm going to talk about the inevitable rise of AI demons, which is maybe a bit of a colorful name, but it'll make sense, I think, later. And then I'm going to talk about how we are going to deal with AI and how this ties into Elon Musk's Neuralink and how we're eventually going to have to, in a real sense, enter the matrix, jack into Neuralink, and go to war with AI demons for the future of humanity. And <laughs> because I know that sounds completely insane, let me first say that I'm assuming here nothing other than materialism. There's no, uh, there's nothing in the argument about God existing or or actual demons in kind of like the, uh, you know, ephemeral sense that we think about them. Everything stems from a completely materialist viewpoint. So, okay, I shall get into it now. So this whole argument starts with a simple question of what are memetics anyway? In the previous video, I kind of uh, alluded to this, the great meme war. And this is essentially what I'm, what I meant there. And so what are memetics anyway? Um, the easy entry point into memetics is to just think about, you know, the first thing you think of when you think about a meme, which is something like a, you know, a funny picture that you share on the internet and it kind of propagates around and people call those memes. I would say that's not quite a complete definition or that's not quite what I mean when I say a meme or when people say meme. Uh, for something to be a meme, I would say it needs to be a little bit more than just a funny picture that's shared on the internet. So I, I think it would need to have a bit of a life of its own, right? So if you think to, so there's meme, meme formats. So think about the jealous girlfriend meme where there's the guy walking with his girlfriend and he's like looking at the other girl and uh, people superimpose various different like images over those characters in that scene. So, but the meme itself kind of lives on, right? So there we have a meme template. The template continues on, has a life of its own, many variations, etc. kind of like a life form. But so there's, that's a little bit different than the standard, uh, just funny image that people might share, right? It has this kind of leaderless quality. Like there's no single person which controls that meme or authors all of the variations. Instead, it's a collective effort. Various people take the template and throw stuff in there that they think is funny or whatever. And very importantly, there's no, not only is there no person who controls it, there's no person who, who it depends on. If any person who enjoys the meme gets hit by a bus, the meme lives on. Or if any person, even the originator of the meme, the first Photoshop wizard who made it, uh, they can fall off a cliff and the, the meme lives on. So if you think about a character like, like Pepe, for example, Pepe is this, this frog character you may have seen on the internet. And he has a bit of a personality which has been collectively established, right, over some time. He's similar to the, other, to the previous example, the meme template, but he uh, is a character. So he has a personality and uh, and so on and so on. There's lots of variations of Pepe. There's a little bit of like lore established around Pepe. But again, the point here is that Pepe, this meme, uh, lives independently 
from any individual person. If the character has a sort of like a character arc and they evolve over time, it's not because any single person has been in charge of that, right? It kind of evolves naturally. Now you might say, this isn't really new, and it's not really new. This is what I'm describing here is in a sense just ideas, although I would note that we've come up with a new word for the thing because it's a little bit different. This iteration of it is a little bit different. But memes are just ideas, and ideas have have spread and evolved through history, uh, through all of our history, in the form of stories and characters and stories. And, you know, in the past, people would have been focused a lot less on Pepe and uh, Chad and so on, these various memes. And they would have been focused on like Prometheus and Hercules and, you know, Beowulf and these, these characters, right? So what's different here is that we have the internet, of course, right? And in a sense, the internet changes nothing. We're still just talking about these ideas and they, they spread and evolve and they, they bounce into people's minds, individual people's minds, and that's generally where they're changed. You know, for Pepe to evolve, some individual person has to take Pepe into his head, open up Photoshop, and birth a new variation of Pepe. <laughs> in another sense, the internet changes everything. Now these memes are living in this, this computational substrate which has incredible uh, depth and detail. You can just fit a ton of information into this into this space. Like in the previous generation of meme sharing, you'd have this kind of landscape of books out there in the world. And that landscape of books can hold a certain amount of information. I mean, you can have tons of books, but you kind of hit a limit where like people can't read like a zillion books. There's not there's just a limit on how many books are ever in in circulation. Uh, you know, it doesn't max out at like billions of books. Uh, I think it max, there's probably, I don't know how many books are in print or in circulation, but it's not that many. But if you compare the amount of data there to the amount of data in the internet, it's massively exploded, like by many, many orders of magnitude. So this, in a sense, like the, the matrix that these ideas live in has just gotten way more resolution. It can, it can store way more stuff. So this space that I'm describing, I'll refer to it in a couple of different ways. One is the nuosphere, which is, you know, not my word, but it's kind of alluding to or trying to describe this space of ideas where, and nuo, nuo is like from the same root word, I think, from as a Gnostic, which is like knowledge, I believe. I'll throw that up in, uh, in post. This newosphere has always been around. This is the, the realm of ideas. And in the previous generation, the newosphere would be, the medium for the newosphere would be books like I've talked about. And now it's gotten, it's gotten a huge upgrade. It's now digital and it's a computational realm. So why is it called the newosphere? It's called the newosphere to contrast this domain to the biosphere, where at least I think that's why. And in the biosphere, this is the sphere, this is the domain of biological organisms. So the nuosphere is different in, like these are in a sense, they're just analogies. Of course, like the nuosphere, this information realm, it exists in the same realm that the biological stuff does. It's just all running on like the basic physics of the universe, of course. So this making a distinction between, you know, the biosphere and the nuosphere, you could argue if you're pure reductionist, like it's just, it's just something that we're doing. It's just a different way to think about it. That's totally fine. Um, but there is this information domain where ideas spread. And, and of course it's, it's real in a real sense, because like I said, it does run on the physics. Like there is, there's a physical footprint to every idea in the neuron, the neuronal pattern in your mind, which is a physical thing. So it does exist in a physical sense, but we're kind of like extracting it out into this idea, comparing it to the biosphere for a good reason, right? We're comparing it to the biosphere because it's inhabited by these things, these memes, which are lifelike. And so the newosphere is not just populated by memes and pictures of frogs and various hilarious images. There are all kinds of characters and 
uh, ideologies and gods and demons and God, all of the characters from religion and the stories and the books, they're all there. And again, I said I wasn't going to require any anything non-material, like there's no extra materialism required, nothing beyond materialism. So I'm, I'm what I'm saying is that at the very least, these things, these gods and demons and the God and Yahweh and all of these things, they exist in the newosphere. They exist at the very least as ideas. So let's think a little bit more about the newosphere and and this mimetic landscape and how it looks. So, of course, this mimetic landscape, it's kind of running on human minds. Like, the memes, they exist within human minds, and of course they get transferred onto the internet, into computers as data patterns in machinery. And these things change and evolve um, separately to the underlying hosts. So this is a really important point is that these things in the neosphere, these memes, these gods and demons, they, they persist potentially much longer than people, right? I think I, maybe I mentioned that earlier, but any individual can die who's a carrier of the meme and the meme is fine. It lives on. So the memes become a bit immortal. The gods become immortal, right? In a real sense. And of course, this is where the word meme comes from, is this, this analogy or metaphor to biology. This was Richard Dawkins' idea originally. He's the one that coined the term. And he coined the term, I'm pretty sure, in the selfish gene, or he at least coined it around the time of writing that book. And he, the way he was using the word was, he was describing memes as these little packets of information that replicate themselves through time. Like a pretty narrow, pretty simple uh, description of what we're talking about here. But the reason he used the word, you know, the reason he gave it the name meme is it's a variation on gene. And of course, that, that's Dawkins' field. So I'll describe kind of what I think he was pointing to. I read like three quarters of the selfish gene. I think I got it though. Uh, I'll explain what he meant there, and it's actually very relevant. Like, it's the same thing, actually. It's, it's, the connection is, like, perfect, in a sense. What he was describing is this discovery about genetics, where the way that I think about it is there's a sense in which the genes, which are in your DNA, those patterns that exist in your DNA, are they're the thing which is persisting through time and they're using you as a vehicle. Life forms are used in a sense as these vehicles for getting genes, these snippets of information into the future. And of course those genes confer certain benefits and so on to the hosts so that the genes can kind of advance into the future if you want to put it that way. And this actually makes sense because, okay, so one of the reasons this can even happen, like how can these genes persist through time? How can the genes kind of live longer than the host, which of course they do. Um, you know, when you reproduce, your, your entire DNA isn't necessarily copied over or isn't copied over unless you have a twin of yourself. Um, but snippets, large snippets of your DNA are. So your genes are progressing into the future, right? So why does that even make sense? Like how is that even possible? And the, the reason it's possible is that DNA is the first thing that we've discovered in the universe that I'm aware of that is a naturally occurring, as far as we're aware, uh, coding mechanism. So everything else in your body, the proteins and the enzymes, they have a certain structure and their structure is functional, right? Like a certain enzyme has a certain... Uh, you know, molecular structure so that it can perform a certain action or do something functional to achieve some goal in the organism. And, and DNA is the first thing, which is actually the structure, the physical chemical structure that you find in there. Um, the ATCG, right? Those, uh, amino acids, 
They're amino acids, right? Anyway, that, that pattern that you find in the genetic double helix, that physical biological structure, it's actually a code. So in DNA, we have the first information substrate, like a pure information system. So in, in DNA, what we have is these information patterns, these genes, and a gene just being a sort of loosely defined, but kind of like the smallest unit collection of encoding of DNA pattern that actually like kind of does something and like can persist as kind of a unit. Um, like your DNA, when you, when things as species change and so on, they don't change like one base pair at a time, really. It's more like chunks are shuffled around and change and, and so on. And so Dawkins made this observation that the genes are kind of, they're the thing which is sort of almost the product of evolution. We notice that individual organisms live and die. It's like, is evolution really trying to make us like better and stronger? If it was, wouldn't we just not die? Like we don't biologically necessarily have to die. You know, when you're young, you're, all of your cells are regenerating. Like you're, you're fine in that moment. And eventually it seems that we're kind of pre-programmed to die. And that in a sense, like is confusing because it's like, wow, evolution, like you couldn't prevent me from dying. You know, like, thanks man. But, um, it actually does make sense if you start thinking of the genes as being the goal, because if we weren't dying, the, the, uh, you know, the rate of change might not be as fast. The constant death process is like a forcing function to refresh, 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 but the genes are progressing through. So dying comes the, becomes the sort of mechanism by which we speed up this information evolution at the genetic layer, right? Because again, this, the DNA gives us this information domain. It's like pure information in a sense. If you just kind of think about it in that, in that way, you can imagine it's just information which is defining the structure and the behavior of all these physical organisms. And that kind of is changing over time. And the entire system is sort of optimized to, to, uh, for that, to make the genetics evolve quickly. So Dawkins made this observation and then he made the connection to the information realm and he coined the term meme where we have little bits of inf information in like the regular life that are not genes. They're just like words and ideas, etc. And they actually do kind of the same thing. They change over time. They sort of evolve in this landscape. That's a lot like biological uh, evolution and they uh, outlive their hosts, etc. And so just kind of to reiterate how these two things are the same in the genetic case, we have this, information space, which is instantiated in the physical world in DNA, which lives in us, but we have this information space. And through that space, you have genes, these, these patterns of information, and they are moving through time. And in the mimetic space, it's the exact same thing. It's, uh, an information space. It's instantiated instead of in DNA in computers. And in a sense, it's much quicker. And so one of the points that's important about the fact that it's fast is that I think what happens over time is that more these information spaces kind of stack up. Genetics was for a while the fastest way to iterate. Then we develop language and writing and books and so on. And we develop this new mimetic space. The newosphere is really born in a sense. Now we have the internet and it's just super, super, super fast and super high resolution, super deep. It also becomes kind of the most important thing, you know, like the physical world still matters, but this newosphere, this, this realm of ideas becomes more and more important the faster it is. It's so fast that it's kind of more important to the fate of things than our genetics in a sense, which is why I said earlier that I think this is, we have a few decades, which I will get to soon. So anyway, kind of back a little bit to Pepe and these various memes that are on the internet. And so what was interesting with memes, as we call them, 
was we had this emergence of these kind of a novel thing. Like we had the Neosphere, we had the information domain already, but we noticed uh, because the substrate changed, in a sense, like it doesn't change anything, it's still just an information realm. Um, but because it was so fast and it was a new medium, uh, we noticed a new kind of thing, not quite an idea, not quite like a running joke. It's something different. But the thing is, it doesn't stop there. Like these were, these were the first, the first novel evolution, the first new species of thing that this, this new substrate allowed for. But it's not going to stop there and it's not stopping there. All the ideas move on to the new substrate, right? So ideologies, ideas in general, conversation, religions, the gods, the demons, the heroes, all of these things now migrate into this digital domain. And then things become very interesting because we've already seen this now. It's, it started out with just memes and those are pretty innocuous. And then we noticed new ideologies develop in a real sense, right? In the past, these, say, religions, etc., would have been shaped by a relatively small number of people. Few would be writing the books and even giving the, uh, the sermons. So in that scenario, things would have evolved relatively slow. The stories stay more or less the same for a long period of time. But now it's so fast and it's collaborative and there's feedback. So we can see how viral the thing is in real time. We can have people literally vote in some sense, like in Reddit, you upvote, downvote, retweet, etc. The whole thing just moves very quickly now. And it's much more, in a sense, driven by like the, the hosts of the, this memetic, this memeplex, this larger, sometimes people use the word memeplex to describe Something a little more than just a meme, like a single idea. This is more like a collection, a body, and a larger organism of, a, uh, of ideas. So an ideology, like a large ideology might be called a memeplex. So what on earth does a digitally native, digitally evolved, bottom-up, self-organizing ideology or religion look like? Well, I would say, uh, I think we should be afraid. <laughs> And so, of course, the way that these, the way that religions and ideologies and all these bigger memeplexes kind of migrate onto this new territory, into the internet, into this digital realm, um, is we don't start new ones from scratch, right? We kind of import the old ones over and let them evolve and battle it out. And so what we're seeing and what will continue to happen, no doubt, is that these ideas, some of them very old, some not so old, they kind of flood in. And they start this evolutionary process where you might take and remove certain chunks of an idea, replace a certain group. Like you might have an ideology that kind of pits one group against another, says like these guys are bad, they're responsible for all the bad things. I think most ideologies do that. And this ideology might have a pretty attractive uh, overall contagious ability, etc. But we import it in from you know, say like the, the 20s or something, we import it into the new, this new digital realm. And then we start, we let it evolve. It just naturally evolves. No one has to do this. It just happens. So we might update it for the, for the present day and kind of shuffle things around and replace uh, the old enemy with a slightly newer enemy that's just a little more uh, updated for the modern time. And, and it just evolves from there. So, of course, what comes next, what we are in the process of doing, what is unfolding, I would say, is that we are moving into this new era of digital native, uh, digitally evolving ideologies and religions. And again, we start at memes, we start at small little packets of information, and they're building up into these larger structures, which all of which is evolving in real time and being shaped incredibly quickly and sometimes consciously too right some people look at like the kind of ideology of the day and think like you know i know how we could make that more viral and like more whatever better like it's not entirely unconscious it's a bit of both but we're we're entering into this this era where we are going to be working up the stack reconstructing new ideologies and ultimately reconstructing new religions because 
the difference between an ideology and religion, like if you just keep going up the stack and you keep building it up into a larger and larger and more um, comprehensive, more sophisticated idea structure, belief system, it just eventually, like at some point it becomes a religion and that's where we're going. And even if we don't get to religion or it takes a little longer, we're still getting to these digitally native evolved ideologies and either way we are what i think is likely to happen is we're going to the tribes so to speak which are unified under our governments etc are going to reshuffle around and reformulate under these new religions these new ideologies this is already happening um and ultimately where it probably goes is that these these mimetic structures, they battle it out, right? Even if there's no like physical war, these mimetic structures, they're battling it out for mind share, right? They want to run on more people's heads. People who are proponents of a certain memeplex ideology, they actually try to like, you know, infect other people. They'll try. That's one of the hallmarks of an ideology, I would say, is that you want other people to believe it and join it. Um, so they already are out there competing for mindshare. And again, you could say this this is the way it's always happened. The cycle repeats over and over. This is just what religions have done for all of time. Um, and that's true. Uh, I would just say what's different here is we just have a different substrate. It's just happening very quickly. And we just happen to be in one of those reshufflings, which is, uh, you know, may you live in interesting times. Now, there is something that's a little bit special about this substrate. This is the substrate of computation and information really unleashed. We didn't have that in previous eras. We didn't have computation in previous eras. And now we have something that's actually qualitatively different. In the past, you couldn't quite have an autonomous entity that lived entirely in the Neosphere. So you had the books and you had the characters and you had Hercules and Prometheus and Dionysus as characters living in people's minds. So were they autonomous? Like, kind of. They persisted for thousands of years. They're immortal, immortal gods. And they're, like, no single person authored how they would change over time. So in a sense, they're, like, kind of autonomous, but not really. Like, individual people still had to, like, make changes to the character, write a different book, write a different version of the character, etc. And now we have something entirely different on the horizon, and that's AI. And so let's talk first about just computation a little bit in general. We've had these computers, we've had autonomous things on the internet for some time, actually, in a sense. You know, like, much of what computers are doing are, in a sense, kind of all the, they're, they're, they're machines, right? They, they're instantiated on machines, but in this abstract neosphere space, they function like machines. You know, the internet consists of a whole bunch of little robots, essentially, like abstract informational robots that do all kinds of things. They route traffic. They, you know, they, they make, make sure your HTTP request gets served with a web page. Um, Google has Google and other, uh, search providers. They have these, an indexing system. So they have these little spiders, these little robots. They're just programs, but they go out and look for things on the internet. So they're continually like pinging different websites, pulling in that information and building this internal map of the internet, which is kind of like, uh, Google has like a little copy of it kind of locally, but these spiders, they go out and they crawl the internet and they bring back the information. So we've had these little autonomous entities on the internet for some time. But what we are on the brink of with AI is giving them true autonomy. Because right now, like those little spiders that crawl the web, they don't have any f degrees of freedom. You know, they follow rules. They follow exact programming and it just tells them what to do and they don't have their own interests, etc. But of course, what we are trying our absolute hardest to do is to create these autonomous entities that 
move through the noosphere, move through this information matrix, this realm, we're doing our best to build ones that are autonomous and smart. And we're going to succeed eventually. I'll talk a little bit about the history of AI. So the kind of first major phase with AI was what's called good old fashioned AI, I believe. So this was where people tried to make these autonomous, smart programs by uh, just kind of handwriting a bunch of complex rules. Like maybe if I just write enough rules carefully enough that are like cleverly designed enough, we'll get like an emergent intelligent thing that can even do what humans do. And it actually didn't work. So there was some progress made and you can do a fair bit like Stockfish, the chess engine is written in this manner. It's just a bunch of rules and it's very good at chess, but it didn't generalize. So the next thing that worked really well was machine learning. And the approach here is a little bit different here. Instead of trying to write the rules that would make something smart, we mimicked the brain a little bit and we tried to write in computer code the like a blank mind like the structure of how we understand our brain to work, which is you have a bunch of interconnected neurons and they have these patterns that move through them and that somehow represents ideas and stuff. And like, we didn't really even know how it worked, but we tried it out, created a digital representation of a neuro, simple neuron kind of structure and, and it actually works. And so, but as I was saying, this, this machine learning approach what you do is you, you create a blank mind. So you write in code the kind of structure, the layout, you give the thing like X million neurons or whatever. And these exist in the computer just as numbers. And so you start it with a blank mind and then you train it. So instead of trying to write all the rules of intelligence into the thing, it's like, okay, let's create a blank structure that's kind of like a brain. And then let's train it on a whole bunch of data, tell it, Okay, you got that right, you got that wrong, you got that right, you got that wrong, and adjust the weights in the neuron, in the neurons, which are just numbers, and it actually works. We have neural nets, and we've had neural nets for a long time now that can recognize images and do just as good as people and uh, do all kinds of crazy things. And so anyway, the reason this is relevant is we are, I think, going to succeed there's no stopping it, unfortunately. <laughs> For better or worse, there's no stopping this progress. We are going to create autonomous, intelligent entities which crawl the noosphere for the first time in a real autonomous way, right? What happens when we have an AI which is very smart and reaches the point where it kind of is on its own, right? And, you know, like, even now, the AI models can't be predicted in a sense, like, the output of, or you want a little bit of stochastic behavior in the models for them to actually produce good outputs. For example, in GPT, in the GPT models, there's a bit of, there. it's a next word predictor, and it could just predict the the most likely next word every time but what happens actually when you do that is that you get circuitous kind of boring text and so we're like okay cool we'll just change that a bit we we tell it to output not always the most likely next word in the in the collection of tokens but how about like the second or third or whatever i don't know how they do it but something like that and that actually produces because of it's it's a little more unpredictable it produces this really interesting kind of meandering through this knowledge space and so anyway what we're, we're trying to do this we're trying to make these autonomous systems uh a little bit autonomous <laughs> like we want them to be able to think for themselves we want them to be able to have some amount of free will even because well for one we're just we we, ha we have to do anything we can think of like if someone poses the problem, like, I wonder if we could do it, we're just gonna do it. We have to do it, we have to try, we won't stop. And so there's a group of people who've been thinking about this for a couple decades, I think now. This is the AI safety community. And they 
are very careful thinkers, I would say. Uh, like they're very serious people. It's a very underground community of like very nerdy, smart people. And they've been very worried about this for a long time because what is it going to look like when we have these AIs? What is it going to look like when we have autonomous entities kind of roaming the internet? Or even if they're not autonomous, even if they're kind of caged, um, what's going to happen when we have this recursive self-improvement thing where, uh, you know, to go back to the DNA example, for DNA to reshuffle itself to make smarter, more powerful entities, it had to take generations, right? You like, oh, I'll try a new mutation, see how that turns out, selective pressures, and it gets a signal boost or a signal down boost, right? But now it's all digital, and when we're thinking about the evolution of like a, a digital mind, a digital intelligence, it's going to make those updates really quickly, like right away. So it, it happens very fast. So anyway, these AI safety people have been thinking about this for some time, and you know, if you're skeptical about the dangers of AI, I would say uh, read Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence. Um, I read it... I don't know, seven or some years ago, I think right when it came out. And I thought at that point, I thought AI was going to be, you know, I thought if something very intelligent develops in synthetic form or biological, like I didn't think it would matter. Um, If something like that develops, it should be benevolent. Because I thought benevolence is just kind of like the smarter alternative and that something smart would kind of arrive there. Um, But I would say go read Bostrom's book if you're not afraid because it seems it's not that simple. It seems very unlikely to be that simple. Um, There's no necessary correlation between intelligence and like benevolence. Those things can be totally orthogonal. It's the orthogonality thesis is his point there. But anyway, people have been thinking about this for a long time. And yeah, also, if you think that this is not such a big problem, you just pull the plug. I would say, again, go read Bostrom's book. There are many, many very clever, very devious ways in which a smart thing can escape a cage that you put it in. And even if you think, well, we'll contain it, first, good luck containing it. But if you think we'll contain it and if it goes evil or whatever, we'll pull the plug. I mean, even if you assume that works, what's going to happen after you pull the plug? Those engineers are going to go into the white, go to the whiteboard and sketch out like a new idea and they're going to go plug it back in and try something new. Right. My point is like, we're never going to stop trying. There is no, like, there's just no way that happens. We're going to continue trying to build the thing until we build it. It's just, it's in our nature. (laughs) So my point here is that the AI demons are coming in a real sense. And again, I'm not assuming anything non-material here. Just if you have an autonomous, intelligent entity in this like idea realm, in this information space, um, I mean, demon is one word for it. Call it whatever you want. It's it's scary. Uh, Especially as something like this becomes more intelligent than us. In the long, in the final analysis, if the thing is a lot smarter, it's hard to imagine how it doesn't end up with total control. It's like if you're playing a really long running game of almost any kind of game, any kind of game, even if there's some chance in it, etc. If you're playing a long running game with something, someone, something that is way smarter than you, it's going to win. Right. And we have this example literally in AI with games that we play like chess and go, etc. You know, the, the deep mind AIs are now better at basically every, well, every like board game that can be played like digitally, I can think of, they're now way better. So when you extend that to the, the great competitive game, the great competitive landscape of our existence and life, um, if you loose into that world, a demon, an entity, which is super, super smart. 
eventually it's going to end up with the control. It doesn't necessarily end up killing you, <laughs> although it might, <laughs> but it ends up having the say in the things. So if you're going to take the route of let's make, let's engineer it so that it's nice, um, you better get that right. Because once you loose it into the world and it starts playing the game and it acquires whatever resources, human beings that are aligned to it because it promises them various things and so on and pays them because it can make money on the internet and trade cryptocurrencies and whatnot. Um, that thing is eventually going to accrue all the power. And this is what Elon Musk meant when he said, I'll find the tweet maybe, but he said something like AI is loosing the demon or summoning the demon is what he said. And uh, it's because it is. It's exactly what it is. And so what do we do about this? So after reading Superintelligence, I was... I went from very optimistic about AI to very pessimistic and I couldn't really see how we were going to survive or how are we going to survive this with our having any say in our destiny if the thing wins out and is assured to win out then we become its slaves right even if it's really nice to us it it becomes the boss whatever freedom we end up with is only the freedom that it allows us to have, essentially. So maybe you could create one that is benevolent in the sense that it gives us freedom, but that becomes complicated because who wields the thing? That's the other thing is, in addition to these things being autonomous, you also have the situation where they're, they're also taking input from people or people have them sort of like on a leash and they use them as their entities to go out there and gain power and so on. So which is what I'm getting to with this great, or what, what I was kind of alluding to with the great mimetic war is this eventuality. And I'll talk a little bit more about it in a second. But so before, after reading Bosham's book, I was quite pessimistic. And the first time I became optimistic again, somewhat optimistic, was when Elon Musk came out with his Neuralink idea. Because Elon's been talking about this fear of AI for a while. He's been thinking about it for a while. And Neuralink is the only way that I think we can survive it. And I'll explain what I mean. So the question is really, how do you compete with a super intelligent digital demon? <laughs> and the only way to do that is to, you know, how do you fight a monster? You have to become a bit of a monster, right? So I think the only way to fight something like that is you have to become like it a little bit. The only way that we survive AI, the only way that we retain our, our some, some control over our destiny is that we enter into that realm. So this is what Musk, his ultimate goal with Neuralink, I think, I think he's even stated that this is his goal with Neuralink. The real reason behind it is not to help people re repair their vision or whatever. It's so that we can defeat the AI demons. <laughs> and uh, because, okay, how do you fight something that has an IQ of like a thousand? You just can't, right? But if we can create a brain machine interface, so if we can bring the computation, in a sense, right down into our minds, or to put it the other way, we can enter the computational space, then we can start to upgrade our intelligence, right? So one of the things obvious, the first obvious thing you could do is you could do math in your head really easily, right? You would have a little math module and just imagine how it would work is you could just kind of pose in your head, like what is 798 times 15,217. When we have a Neuralink like system, maybe you just kind of pop that into your like into your like visual system or speech system and the system recognizes it computes it gives you an answer essentially instantly and i think what happens after that so after you get the hang of that and you start using it and so on i think what would happen is you just 
whenever you look at math like that, you just pop into your head and get the answer. And you just start to get used to it, right? Like the brain is very plastic. It can adapt to a great deal of things. Um, if you have a module in your head that can do arithmetic like that really fast, you just start to like integrate that into your like mind and it just becomes a little thing you just fire off. And now you're just a person who can do that. It's like, and I don't think, I think your brain would really, would really uh, adopt this. It wouldn't just remain like a little module that's not integrated. Um, because I think at bottom, like we don't, if you think of someone who's a savant, who can do those kinds of calculations in their head, from what I understand, usually they just kind of see it. The answer just kind of arrives or they see shapes that like fit in a certain way. Rarely do they really compute it all out in a really mechanical way. So what I'm saying is that we already think in this way. Like if you recall a memory, it just kind of pops into your head, right? You're like trying to, and it just pop, it's there. So I think if we start integrating these computing modules, we uh, pretty quickly, they become us, right? And, and another example would be memory, right? What happens when you have integrated into your brain like a digital extension of your memory? So I can just like throw anything, like names and numbers and text and the entire like content of Thus Spoke Zarathustra or any book or whatever. When you can just have all of that accessible, um, I think your brain would adapt and you would just kind of integrate that ability to have a perfect memory. And your thinking, your the way you your dialectic, your discourse, the way you speak, etc., it would change to reflect this ability to remember just perfectly. You just have a perfect memory now and you're you just upgrade, right? And so what I think, the reason I think Neuralink actually can work here is that I think as you integrate it, assuming it can work, like at a physical level, it has to be high enough resolution, etc. But I think if it gets good enough, your intelligence starts to expand outward, adding the ability to do the arithmetic, adding the infinite memory, adding the ability to be connected to the internet, you know, where you can just kind of, you're speaking, you pause for a second and you've just like searched, you've Googled something, you've, you've got the exact information. Like that changes how you, how you think that changes your effective intelligence in a real way. If I can just be speaking, thinking and like, boom, search something, get the answer, like at the speed of thought, um, it changes the whole essence of how I think. And I think, so yeah, I think what happens in general as you, as you, with this technology is our capability expands into the computing realm, right? Like the only way to defeat these AI demons is to like become one. And I think in a real sense, what happens, what we have to do is we're going to have to like jack into the matrix in a, I can't believe how you know, uh, prophetic the matrix was. Um, but that's, I think literally what we're going to have to do is get the wiring right into our brain and start expanding our ability to use it until we're just becoming more and more intelligent to the, up to like the, the level of an AI itself. And okay. One thing I want to say here is some people, uh, this argument that I'm making needs to be distinguished from an argument that people sometimes make in the AI safety community about, you know, if you're thinking that you're going to be able to maintain control, it's like an argument might be, well, if I can just maintain control over this thing that's super smart, I should be okay. I'll just tell it, like, don't do anything that, uh, you know, I don't want or whatever. Um, and the AI people will tell you that that won't work because when the thing is that smart um, in spatial terms, it just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and you're the same size. So your ability to understand what it's doing, to interface with it just vanishes. 
it becomes infinitesimal. And again, the will of the AI becomes the only thing that matters. Um, it doesn't have any requirement to obey you, right? But the difference here is that I think what happens when we integrate with the thinking machines, with the AI, that we don't stay the same size as this little small thing with this growing AI next to us. We are in it and we expand to fill that space. Like what I'm thinking would happen is my ability to understand the ramifications of these big ideas and, and uh, to understand like the workings of complex systems, etc. It wouldn't be like I just fire off a query to some module in my head and it gives me just a simple answer. I need to be able to understand and see and have mastery over that whole space, right? And I think we can do that. What happens though is you be, you become you be you become more uh, computer than human eventually in terms of your intelligence. But I think I, I my hunch is that your consciousness can in a sense come to fill a larger and larger space. And then you can become a worthy opponent of a demon AI. <laughs> so yeah, just to kind of reiterate or to go over this a little bit, or I'll just say one more point here to really drive it home and strike fear into your heart, I hope, because we should be afraid. <laughs> Is that, um, you know, I think we're a few decades away from really summoning the AI demons in a real sense. And we have two options. Option one is sit back and hope it goes well. Um, I mean, for most people, we're not going to have an influence on how these things are designed. Um, but I mean, like as a civilization, one option would be that we just kind of like create them, push them out into the ether or just wait for them to escape into the ether and just keep tinkering with them and just kind of hope that it goes okay, right? Or hope that you somehow maintain control over the one long enough that you're, you survive at least or something. But I think this is the very, very dangerous. It's obviously the dangerous path to play because another point that I'll mention that, that Bostrom talks about is the, you only get one tr chance at this. Like the first one that is really, really good and obtains this recursive self-improvement becomes really smart, like very, very fast. And then it's the most powerful player in the game. So you don't really get to like try again in a few years because depending on the time scales, uh, even a small head start in, in the book, Bostrom, I think says, given some basic assumptions, like even a couple months difference because of that exponential trajectory makes so much difference that it's, n there's no comparison, right? The first one to achieve escape velocity wins the whole game. And so anyway, we have two choices. We can either roll the dice or we can, and just hope that the destiny that the thing decides for us is a good one and that we get all of that right on the first shot. <laughs> or we have to jack in, we have to enter the matrix. We have to, you know, we have to get the brain interfaces working and integrate well enough that we can catch up, that we can stay at similar levels of capability and understanding as the things we're building, right? We're building these entities, these demons in that world, and we have to enter into that world with the power and the strength of a demon ourselves in order to, uh, you know, maintain any say in how our future goes. So that's the gist of what I wanted to talk about. I'll maybe just recap though a little bit. What we have with memetics, what we have with memes, are these little entities that are kind of lifelike and they move through the information space. And the information space has recently had a big upgrade. In a sense, it's the same, it's just information. 
but it's now much faster, digital, huge depth, just way more space for stuff to happen. And this is analogous to the genetic information space, which is where the name comes from, where we have our DNA being the physical instantiation of that information space. And over time, we have the patterns, the information, these little entities, so to speak, within that information space competing over time. And they do that through us, through biological life. And we have this evolution of these things in, in that space. And with the mimetic space, it's the exact same thing in, in the sense of uh, they're both information spaces, so they're the same in that regard, but they, they exist in different areas. And the information space is, is much faster. Things happen very quick there. And so anyway, this information space, this mimetic space, is the same space that we've always had, that we've called the Neosphere or other names at times. This is the place occupied by stories and characters and gods. These things which are immortal, they live longer than us. And in a very real sense, they actually shape our destiny. These stories, these characters, these religions, these ideologies, they determine our future a lot. You know, in a sense, more than any of us individually do, which is why people have said, I think maybe Jung has made this point that these, the ideas, these gods, they compete over time for dominance in a real sense, right? They are these ideas that people have in their heads and they drive the people to behave in a certain way. And if those ideas are good, if they're fit, then the hosts may persist through time and then the genes are happy or sorry in this case the memes are happy and the genes are happy because of course if the memes are good the physical biological entities survive longer and their genes on in that information space also persist so the two information spaces are kind of intertwined i mean i guess we're the thing that links them together right <laughs> But anyway, this is the domain that the gods compete in, and with computers, we have a sort of variation, a new change to this space, where we have this computation, which is in a way breathing life into this neosphere in a new way. And we have these little robots, these little spiders that crawl around the internet, and... You know, they exist as these autonomous entities, but they're mostly pretty robotic, pretty predictable. But with the effort to create AI, we are finally creating something truly novel in the space, a non-human, autonomous, intelligent entity, which may or may not have a physical body in the sense of like arms and legs, doesn't really matter. Um, it seems more likely anyway that the a thing like this has, in a sense, you know, millions of eyes because it can connect to various sensors. So it can get information from all over the place at once. And you can just hire people to do things or compel them to do things or, you know, use machinery maybe, but you probably don't need it for the most part. But anyway, AI gives us this new entity in this mimetic space. And we are going to strive to make them autonomous and as smart as possible. And there is virtually, there is no way to stop that. And there's also no way to contain those things as once they're created, eventually they get out. So we will have these autonomous AI demons and the, again, as I just said, I think there's no way to stop, to maintain control, to overpower one of these things, unless you are up to the challenge, unless you are like it, unless you're on the same level as it. And 
for the most part, this is not going to mean physically being physically strong. Uh, cause what are you going to fight? There's no physical thing. <laughs> like there's no single server to blow up because eventually it's replicated all over the place. Um, you have to outwit it. You have to, you have to become as smart as it. And then we can perhaps, uh, coexist with these things. So I think this is an incredibly important thing. And I do actually have a way to fit crypto into this. <laughs> the things we do right now in the inter intervening intermediate time are crucial because we need to make sure this goes well. We only get one chance. And I think what we can do with crypto is potentially like the big vision, which I'll talk about much more in the future with crypto is as a general purpose way to better organize and coordinate human beings in a more intelligent way. So if we can use that technology to organize and coordinate ourselves better so that we can, you know, uh, consciously drive our research efforts, have more uh, sane governments, etc., then hopefully that can kind of set the stage for this AI thing to go okay, because that's going to be the real challenge. But anyway, thanks for watching, and just remember that we're all going to make it, so uh, it's going to be okay. Peace.